Hey, this is Al from Omug Comics. Make sure to check out Lenny Vernon Badass Trucker. You can get your hands on it at just about any Omaha and Lincoln comic book store. Otherwise, follow Omug Comics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for our website. Link, subscribe, and like. And make sure you keep on trucking. Hey, everybody, this is Leonardo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to Bull Spit with Moose. Cowabunga! Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bull spit. <laughs> Welcome, Moose, back to another all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. From Archie Bunker's place, and who's the boss, to Golden Girls and Step by Step, this man has had his hands in some very memorable properties. So please welcome, Mr. Bob Rosenfarb. Hi, Paul. How are you? Doing good. Glad to hear it. You're just sitting out hanging here in California, just trying to uh, enjoy the weather and have a good time. So, what started you on the path to entertainment? Like, was that something, like, when you were a kid, is, did you want to go into entertainment, or? I um, I was always fascinated by television growing up in movies. Um, I loved comedy. I loved uh, being entertained. I loved watching the way they made these things. I was always just fascinated by stories. And by the way they shot things, and um, I, you know, I, I lived in, I was a kid from New Jersey, and I, I always wanted to be in it, but I never really thought about it, you know, as a realistic choice. And then I started, um, we had a coffee house in my college at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey, which we called Fairly Ridiculous, and um, I started meeting comedians and writing for them, and uh, I loved it, and I was pretty good at it. And then I started doing a little stand-up, which I didn't really like very much. And I kept writing, and then I thought, well, I want to write scripts. I don't want to just write jokes for people. Um, and I started writing spec scripts. Like for, uh, I think my first one ever was for Mork and Mindy. That's how long ago it was. Um, and then I wrote uh, a bunch more. And then I realized that I can't really do this from New Jersey. I have to move to California if I want to have an option, a possibility of being successful at it. So in uh, February of 78, I moved to California. Um, I started writing more scripts, more spec scripts, trying to get an agent, which was very difficult. I became a bartender. I worked as a bartender, which I did for about four and a half years. And then in 1982, I got very fortunate to pitch Archie Bunker, which was the uh, spin-off of All in the Family. I was lucky enough to sell them the story, which was amazing, and I wrote my first network script, and that's how it began. Do you remember what the uh, story was you uh, sold them? Yeah, there's a, there's a very funny irony to that. You're, you're always taught that um, when you write a spec script, you write about the main character in the show. You don't write about the secondary characters, and you certainly don't bring in a, a, like a a big guest that has to carry a big part of the story. And so I went into pitch to these guys, some of whom are still friends of mine to this day. And um, I had a whole bunch of ideas written out, you know, with beginning, middle, and end. And I must have pitched about 15 ideas. And then I pitched about uh, three or four, like two line developed things, you know, just, and uh, I couldn't get a score. I couldn't sell one. And I had one idea left. And I thought, this really isn't good because it's about a secondary character. And they said, well, pitch it anyway. So I pitched it. And they said, we want to, we want to buy that. And the story was, I don't know if you remember, there was a character. He had a niece named Billy that lived with him. Yeah. He had two nieces living with him. Well, Billy went to school, went to college at night, and a professor started hitting on her. It was called Teacher's Pet. And so the story revolved mainly around her and this teacher. And I thought... They're not going to buy that. And the, 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 you, you never know was that Carol O'Connor wanted to work less and be in less scenes. 
So they were like thrilled to find something where they could do a story that he could be involved in, but not have to carry the episode. So it sold, and that was the beginning. Crazy. Yeah, well, I, I I truly didn't want to pitch it. So it, it, it kind of lends back to that. There, there really is, uh, you know, no bad ideas when it comes to creativities. You know, creative you don't know outlets. What's work. You know, let all your ideas out and see see what happens. Yeah. You know, if you have an idea, put it out there and uh, give it a shot. You know, it just, uh, it taught me a good lesson. I learned a good lesson that day. If you have a thought, put it out there. The worst they can do is say no. That's pretty much my entire mantra for life. Yeah. Especially since I started podcasting. It's like, ooh, I want to interview so-and-so. Don't you think they're out of your league? Well, the worst they can tell me is no. So, I'll be happy if they say yes. Right. You know, right. I mean, <laughs> there, there, there's not a whole lot of, uh, there, there's two ways this can go. Yes, no. And especially in our business, which is not a um, a specific way to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It's not like being a lawyer where you go to law school, you bust your ass, but you, at the end of the day, if you work hard enough and study hard enough, you'll be a lawyer. And what we do as writers and people that are entertaining people, we can bust our ass and have all the talent in the world and never accomplish anything that we that we dream of. So to, to accomplish something and to have a good career, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world because I know that so much of it is just timing and, and um, being in the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah. And I mean, as a writer, you... You managed to get some major writing credits. I mean, there was St. Elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned in the intro, uh, Golden Girls. I mean, that's still... That was a story editor on Golden Girls. Okay. That was amazing. Although, <laughs> not that I have a career to worry about that much anymore, but... It was the most happy I think I've ever been on a show, uh, working there. Um, I just didn't jive with the people that were running the show, which was more my fault than anything because I was a new guy and I just, I just didn't go out of my way to be, um, part of the team, as it were, because I didn't understand the team. They, they didn't feel like it was, it was a, it was a great show. It was the best show I ever did. But I didn't feel happy or comfortable on it. Hmm. Yeah. It well, happens. Yeah. I mean, not all, you know, not all projects are suited for all personalities. And that was still relatively early in your, uh, I'm not just the writer career. It was very early. It was my first, uh, my first, uh, sitcom, uh, actual job, you know. So, I mean, so, I, you know, you're learning the ropes. You're, you can almost equate it to, like, when a teen takes, like, fast food management. Yeah. You know, they're, are they actually ready for it? Do they, you know, or, like, yes, they they can be good at the job, but are they good with everything else? Exactly. Exactly. And I just didn't have enough experience and I wasn't politically adept enough uh, and I just didn't get it. I didn't get where they were coming from and uh, they didn't get where I was coming from. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, I would call it creative differences, but they were obviously more creative than I was. So uh, Two trains passing in the night. Match. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a blast while I did it. I loved writing the script I wrote and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, while we're on the topic, what does a story editor do? I mean, I, uh, obviously you edit the story. Story editor is really just a glorified staff writer. Um, you're there, you're on staff, you're not just a freelance writer. Uh, you'll get, at times, you'll be in all the meetings where the stories are created, where the stories are broken, where the scripts are actually taken and rewritten and punched up. Uh, at times you'll get 
scripts from outside writers or even inside writers where they feel that one or two scenes are not particularly good or the whole thing needs a rewrite and you'll get to take a pass at it. You know, there's an expression, writing is rewriting. And um, at any level, when you're a story editor, you're at a lower level, but you're doing some rewriting. The higher the level to go, the more rewriting you do, basically, and the more voice you have in breaking stories and changing things. Um, it was, you know, a story editor is a nice job. It's, it's a way to kind of learn the whole thing before you move up the ladder and really kind of learn your craft. You know, the 10,000 hours, Yeah. you know, that kind of thing where it takes 10,000 hours to really learn a craft properly. I'm not sure it takes that long, but it, it, it was just a place to start and to learn. Had to build from there. Before we dive into your producer credits, uh, is it true you only had one on-scene role as an actor? <laughs> Found that out, did you? Well, I'll tell you something. I, I, I left out an important part of my life. I never wanted to be an actor. I never tried to be an actor. I never thought of being an actor. And uh, when I was here about a year, I... Uh, was literally dragged screaming and kicking to an improvisational comedy show. And um, I had seen a bunch of them in New York, and the ones I saw in those days were terrible. And I was dragged to this thing, and, and I just was like, fell in love with improv, improvisational comedy. And I thought, I've got to try and do this. I've got to do this. And I met the woman who taught the class and was had created at that time, I think, two groups off the wall. And funny you should ask. And um, I said, can I, can I learn to, can people learn to do this? I mean, I don't know. I don't even, it looked like magic to me. You know what I mean? Oh, the way yeah. They were just creating scenes standing on their feet. And uh, she said to me, her name was Dee Marcus. She was a wonderful lady and my mentor in so many things. And I said, can people learn to do this? And she said to me, well, I don't know about everybody, but I'm, I think you can learn to do it. I later found out she said that to everybody, too. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, marketing 101. That's who she was. She had that kind of heart. You know what I mean? She wanted. She wasn't trying to hustle. She was trying to give everybody a chance. And I went there, and and I just was scared to death to get on stage and, and do this. And uh, I held back my fear, and I did it a couple of times, and I fell in love with it. And I, I'm going to be doing it again on Zoom tonight with my class. With the class I'm in, I'm still involved in improv 40 years later. The way the movie role came about is I was teaching improv a few years after that, and people would come to me to help them with their auditions. And I said, sure, I can, you know, I can read a piece with you because, you know, God, give me a script and I'm, you know, I'm golden. It's like, I don't have to make it up as I go. Yeah. That's great. So I would teach people how to, you know, get into character and do an audition. And they were pretty successful with it. And then somebody said, what have you auditioned for? And I said, I've never auditioned for anything in my life. And uh, I thought, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. I should go audition for something and see if I can get it. And I auditioned for this movie called uh, Boogeyman 2. And uh, I think because I didn't really care if I got it or not, I wasn't really worried. I got the part. And it was a terrible movie, <laughs> very low budget. But I got the part and I did a movie. And uh, that was my acting career. That was about all I wanted to do. I went on to do a lot of improv shows live, but that was the last time I was on film. Well, so if it makes you feel better. That's that story. That does happen to be in my top 50 uh, favorite low-budget films. I think there were two Boogeyman 2s, though, and I think I was in the cheaper one. Oh, I know. I, I double-checked. Yeah, yeah, it's that it's one. pretty bad. But uh, it was a fun experience, you know. It, it was so interesting, actors versus a guy that wants to be a writer. There was a scene by a barbecue, and we were very close to the barbecue, and there was a flame, and it was very hot. And the director said, can you all move forward? And everybody, all the actors moved forward. And I tried to move forward, and it was too hot, and I said, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> no, I don't want to burn myself. And the guy said, but you have to. I go, we're going to get burned. And, you know, the actors were obviously more trying to be more cooperative to, to help the, help the director and get hired again. I just was like, I'm not getting burned. So, no, you, you, you heard that as a up, kid. You, know? yeah. you play with fire, you get your ass burned. 
it was so funny. It was so interesting. But I had a ball doing it, and it gave me some insight into what it's like to be on a set before I was ever on a you know television set. And uh, it really was uh, a fun time, very fun time. Well, and then how do you make the jump from writer to producer? It's not even a jump as much as it's an evolution. And, and you know, in television, producers are essentially, well, you have, okay, you have a technical producer, a line producer that's doing all the technical stuff, you know, running the post-production and, and you know, all those kinds of things. Has to deal with the cameras and the you know the nuts and bolts, but most of the producers on a sitcom or on any TV show are writers who eventually evolve into producers. And the way you evolve into a producer is by becoming a better writer, learning to understand what needs to be done, learning how to be able to like run a writing room, for example, learning what stories to pick and choose learning the characters on the show and how to make right in their voices and make things more clear. And basically, you start taking on more responsibility. Once you can run a writing room, you might begin casting because you know the kind of characters that are going to work on that show and the kind of actors playing those characters. You can choose the better ones, the ones that will fit on the show better. Then you begin editing, uh, which is because you, you know the timing of the show and the way to cut it in a way to make things work well and you do production meetings which are things where in pre-production sit down with all the departments and you discuss what needs to be done for the show and like what props are necessary you just go through the script that's there and you just go over everything with everybody and make sure everybody's doing you know what they need to be doing so it's really evolutionary at a certain point uh you're you're just you can do more than right Looks like your first outing was uh, Free Spirit, where you were a co-producer and producer? Yeah, yeah. I was a co-producer. I think I became a producer on that show. I'm honestly not sure. Um, Free Spirit was a Columbia show. I had a, an overall deal with Columbia Pictures in those days with television, which was like Norman Lear. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a fun show. It was... Uh, it was a cute pilot, but it lacked the magic. It lacked the thing that makes a show a show, that makes people want to watch it. One of the kids on the show was Allison Hannigan, who I don't know if you know from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. And all the American, you know, movies, American Pie movies. And uh, she became quite a big star. Uh, she was very, very good. Shows either have magic or they don't. And shows either have, it's like an, it's like an actor, like a personality. They either have charisma or they don't. I've been with actors that I couldn't stand and, and they had such charisma, it didn't matter. Because the minute they were there, the whole room lit up. And other people that were terrific, but they just couldn't necessarily make that, make that happen, make that magic happen. Well, and with shows, you can fill it with, the most talented cast. But if that cast has zero chemistry, the audience feels it. That's absolutely true. And when you look at the shows that have chemistry, it's like, it's just, when you see it, you know it immediately when you're casting a show or putting together a show, you, you know it. It doesn't mean the show's necessarily going to be a hit, but you know the chemistry immediately. Who's the boss is the best example of that. If the chemistry's there... From what I've seen as a viewer and just somebody who loves entertainment in general, the more successful shows have that built-in chemistry with the uh, actors and actresses. Without a doubt. The one, you know, they're the ones who really enjoy coming to work, look forward to seeing each other every day, and for them, it's, it's not even about putting out a quality product. It's, they're just going and having fun. It really becomes, a, it really truly, when they say it's a family, it's a family. It becomes a family atmosphere. You spend more time with those people than you do with your own, uh, you know, your own spouse and children, usually. And uh, if it's a good situation, it's just, a, I mean, I used to love going to work every day. I looked forward to it. I'd get up in the morning and, like, I couldn't wait to get there. In most cases. 
And I think most writers that I know feel that way. We have the writer's room, which is where stories are broken and ideas are coming. You come up with ideas and scripts are rewritten and outlines are written and all that stuff. And that's the most fun place in the world because it's a, it's structured and you need to get the work done. And it's, it's daunting work if you're doing 25 shows in nine months, but it's, it's absolutely the most fun you could ever have with your clothes on. It's, uh, it's just a blast working with these brilliantly talented, funny people and sort of the give and take. It's just, it's just wonderful, wonderful time in life. Wonderful thing to do. I, Wish everybody had the opportunity to do something like that. You uh, mentioned it, and I was going to move into it next. Yeah, you you uh, worked on Who's the Boss? Now, was that the latter half of the series, or? It was the last three seasons. It was seven, I think there were seven shows left on the sixth year. I'm not exactly sure, but I did, I did seven shows of, of one year. And then I did the next two seasons, two complete seasons. And uh, I, I, that came from Free Spirit because Free Spirit, I had a, what's called an overall deal, which meant they bought me for two years to Columbia. And if I was on, they could assign me to a show that I would accept or they would have to pay me anyway, pay out my contract. So uh, when New Who's the Boss came up, there was a very wonderful woman named Fran McConnell who ran the whole thing for uh, um, the television pictures for us. And uh, she said to me, look, we'd love you to go on Who's the Boss. They're losing a lot of their producers, and it'll be a wonderful place for you to be. And I thought, I love Who's the Boss. I'd be happy to do that. I went there, and uh, I had a great, great time. You know, it was just a fun show to do. It was uh, talk about chemistry between Tony and... Uh, Angela was unbelievable. I mean, those two had, those two actors had chemistry. Tony Danza and Judith Light, like, like I've never seen. Uh, you, you know, you know, they're acting and you might have even written it. And yet you're watching the scene and you're, you get so into it emotionally because it, they're just so attached that it, it just works beautifully. Oh, yeah. And see, the, the hard part for me is, I have this thing where if I'm around an accent too long, I have a tendency to slip into it. <laughs> so being around Tony would be difficult because he has that, uh, New York, Brooklyn thing that, that Brooklyn, uh, Italian accent, you know, Hey, Angela, yeah. you know, what do you, what do you do in Angela? We you know, the de- these them and those. Yeah. <laughs> That's who we used to call him. I love what he used to call Jonathan to be. Jonathan! Hey, Jonathan! Jonathan! It was, uh, it was a fun place, and, uh, Tony's actually a college graduate, and a very, very, very bright guy. And, uh, but he grew up in the streets. He under, he knew, knew that language. The fortunate thing for me was, I grew up in, in the, uh, in the suburbs in New Jersey. But my family was from New York, so I spent a lot of time in New York with my family growing up. So Tony's character was very familiar to me. And the, the way he spoke and the way he thought, and uh, it helped me a lot on that show. So yeah, that character is very much the uh, Brooklyn archetype. Very much. And I think the show was so appealing because of the chemistry between them. And I also think to take a character, this is in show started in the early 80s, I guess. And to take a guy who's this macho guy, and he wants to get his daughter out of a bad neighborhood, and he becomes a maid for somebody to protect his daughter and ensure she has a better life, it's pretty big. Oh, yeah. It, it, the overarching message is you do anything for your kids. Exactly. And he was that guy. Um, and he played it beautifully. And Alyssa Milano was just wonderful. And still is wonderful has become this incredible woman. Uh, it was just, it was a great cast. Catherine Hellman was probably the funny, one of the funniest people I've ever seen. Mona. Oh my God. Mona was unbelievable. <laughs> I love her character. Unbelievable. 
In the first episode that I was involved in the writing in, I scored with a big line because there was a fire, and the fireman is is uh, escorting Mona out of the house. And I said, this was when I was kind of accepted by the room. And I said, instead of you know walking around, why doesn't he carry her out? And then she says, oh, you're so big and strong. Thanks for saving me. And then he said something like, "Ma'am, you got to stop running back in there." <laughs> Which was kind of Blanche off of Golden Girls. But that's who she was. I, that's I know. But that's who I was thinking of. I was thinking, what would Blanche do? And I thought, well, she's going to be carried out by a fireman. She's going to just keep running back in. So uh, that was uh, that was I think one of the first lines I ever had in the script there, and it, it uh, put me in good stead to begin with. So that's definitely a way to kick off the uh, writing party. Yeah, it was. It was. I was lucky that it came to me. Start writing the script for the Randy old woman, <laughs> <coughs> but keep it funny instead of you know exactly. Keep it classy. Keep it classy. Exactly. Because that's what I liked about uh, Mona. It was always, you know, yeah she she had the. You know, like the pervy jokes and the demeanor, but like it wasn't creepy. It wasn't like dirty. It was just that, you know, hey, I'm old, but I'm still going. It's like, I'm still going to live my life. It's well, like, go ahead. To me, we're, we're a, a bit, a bit alike. Blanche was a little more out there, but they both had these lively personalities. They both, I think, had these images of themselves as not being particularly old. You know, they didn't think of themselves as old ladies. Oh, yeah, and what's interesting is, if you look at them, they both fit the uh, fiery redhead uh, archetype. Susan Harris, you know, wrote the pilot for Golden Girls, and when I was there for year two, she wrote the uh, first episode of the year, and uh, it was one of the most brilliant pieces of writing I've seen. And it was basically that that Kat, Mona, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Blanche has not gotten her period in a while, and she's convinced she's pregnant. And she goes to the doctor, and she's not pregnant; she's in menopause, and she freaks out. So you know, it's her end of her life as a woman, and she's getting old, and this and that, and she just can't take the concept of it. And I believe Dorothy says to her, "Well, you know, maybe you should go get some help." She's like, go to the psychiatrist. And she says, a psychiatrist? Nobody in my family has ever been to a psychiatrist. That's, of course, until they were committed. You know? <laughs> and that was Susan Harrison. I'll never forget when I read that line. I thought, okay, I understand why she's who she is. Because the whole script was brilliant like that. I actually just saw that episode the other day. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. That was the first one of the second year. It was brilliant. It was. And we had another one that year that, that I did a little work on that won an Emmy, where um, uh, it was uh, done by an outside writer, as a matter of fact. And it was a uh, story about, oh, I remember now what it was. It was uh, B, uh, well, B, uh, Dorothy has a friend who lost her significant other, Pat. We assume it's a man. And it was played, the character was played by Lois Nettleton and she comes to stay with the girls for a while. And she's actually a gay woman. And she finds Rose so kind and loving that she falls in love with Rose. That's Rose right. Rose doesn't and, understand it. Say so Rose doesn't understand it. Uh, and if I remember correctly, uh, Dorothy didn't realize it at first. Dorothy but, knew it. She didn't know she was in love with Rose. That's right. But yet. Blanche is mortified and freaked out, not because the woman's a lesbian, but because how could she fall in love, love with Rose over her? So it's, it's very funny. It was a very funny episode, and it won the Emmy that year. So that's, that's one of my top ten episodes. It was very funny. I wish I could remember the writer's name. He was terrific. Yeah, there's just. did a beautiful, beautiful job on that. Yeah, story. they did. Yeah, just very, start to finish, funny. there was, you know, just hilarity and hijinks from it was. beginning to end. It was. It really was terrific. 
And then you throw in the Sophia remarks throughout the whole thing that, you know, and it just, God, it was gorgeous. Well, I loved, I loved Sophia because <laughs> whenever you write for her, you go, picture this. <laughs> Sicily. A town square in a small town in Italy. A beautiful young maiden comes strolling with a, you know, you know, it was like, you just, it was automatically funny. All she had to do was start that sequence, and it was people were laughing already. Yeah, as soon as she went into the picture of this, you're like, oh, God, what now? And it would just always be hysterical. Yeah. She said, uh, what was my, my, I think my favorite line from that show of all times was uh, somebody that, somebody said, when I was a virgin, the last time I was a virgin, and I don't remember somebody else said, the last time you were a virgin, the Louisiana Purchase was an escrow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was I just thought that was the funniest line but it was there were so many like that they were they did a great job that was a great show <laughs> yeah I mean there were digs at each other but again there were fun digs they were they loved each other yeah the characters loved each other that that's some of the stuff that I miss with today's writing it's there's quality writing out there right but with comedy, it seems they're having a hard time finding a comedy identity. They're I either, agree. you know, you know, punching up or punching down, and it's like just punch across. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have a, a lot of friends, obviously my age, who are writers, and uh, we watch the stuff, and I, and uh, it's just like they're not. It's just like. The, they don't want to do what was done before, so they're trying to create a new version of it. And it doesn't work as well, necessarily. No. Um, and it's sad, because if you look at the, you know, the, the shows, they were truly funny, and they were truly personal. You know, this is what changed society about being corny and, you know, uh, family shows and uh, those kinds of things. I mostly did family shows, and I was, like, really proud of that because people could sit down with their kids, and a whole family could watch the show together. There was an example of something Tony Danza did in, in Who's the Boss, where we had an episode where Sam goes away to college, but it's, like, 20 minutes away, but she wants to live there to be independent. And, of course, Tony misses her and is there every minute, you know? She comes in, he's made a lasagna... She gets back from class the next day, and he's building bookshelves for her. You know what I mean? And it's really frustrating the hell out of her. And the final piece we had that just throws her anger over the top is she goes to take a shower in this big shower area. There are no other women there, no other girls there. And Tony comes out. He goes, oh, hey, Sam, I just fixed the plumbing. And she goes, you're in my shower? And she's furious. And she, you know, just throws him off. She says, I can't do it anymore. You're, you know, you're, you're getting too involved in my personal life. I moved out here to get away from you and I needed my space. And Tony reason, he says, I'm not doing this. And we were all like, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm not going to be in the girl's shower. And we said, well, there are no girls in there. What do you, he said, I'm not going to be in the girl's shower. I'm not going to do it. He said, Tony Maselli wouldn't do this. It's not good. It's just like he felt that families would be a little offended or scandalized by it in those days. And we thought, you know, all right, we'll change it. But we weren't happy about it. We thought, he's not right about this, but okay, we'll go along with him. Two days later, I'm reading a TV Guide article, and it basically says, we like, I don't remember if they spited who's the boss particularly, but they said, I think they did. We like shows like that, that we can watch with the family and feel comfortable and never be, you know, kind of like, surprised in a way we don't want to be. And I thought, Tony knew exactly who that character was and what he should and shouldn't do. Uh. So, you know, that was another good lesson. Well, and at least you guys had the, uh, you know, foresight to listen to your actors and take well, we their input. we knew who the input. boss was. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know... you. A show like that was, uh, you know, I mean, Tony owned part of it. You know, so you don't, you don't really want to write against what an actor feels if you can possibly help it because 
he's not going to play it well. He's not going to, it's not going to be organic. It's not going to come out real, I don't think. I think you want to, especially a guy like Tony who, who's played the character for so long and has a very strong feeling for him. You go with his instincts. And, and we did, obviously, and I'm glad we did. And if we didn't, he probably would have beaten me up, so uh, I'm glad we did, too. <laughs> probably would have beaten you up with another writer. No, exactly. No, he was, uh, we used to play around, you know, Tony had been a boxer. And uh, we used to play, like, you know, slapping around and everything, and uh, forget it. Or as they say in New York, forget about it. He could hit me about 10 times to one. So uh, we had a lot of fun. I don't remember that episode fully, and I'm working on catching up because I love Who's the Boss. But I think in the vein of what would be appropriate and how it would play out really well between him and Sam is if she brings, like, a boyfriend to her dorm. And he's there. Yeah. And he's like, hey. Hey, oh. You know, she's like, (laughs) get out. Yeah. You know, I'm an adult. You can't tell me, you know, how to live my life. You know, I'm I'm not your little girl anymore. Right, exactly. And Alyssa was a strong character and a strong person. So she could really stand up to him. When they battled, it was felt real because they had that, they had a relationship anyway, like a kind of a father and daughter thing going. So they could bring that reality to the, to the show. And, uh, it really worked well. Oh, yeah. The show was on for, uh, I think eight years and we did I, 190. I didn't do, I did, I think about 65 or 75 episodes. I think the whole show did 199 episodes. We were one short of 200. Mm. Yeah, it was pretty good. Pretty pretty good show. Well, and then you moved into my generation's uh, Brady Bunch. Right. <laughs> yes, I did step by step. Tom Miller, who uh, Miller Boyette were the guys that ran that show. And, you know, not ran the show, but owned the show, who had been involved. Basically, Tom Miller had been involved since Happy Days, running and producing shows and creating shows. And Bob Boyette, they were they were like legends. And one thing you could never do was say, "This is like Brady Bunch," in front of Tom. It really bothered him because it was, but I don't think he wanted to ever admit it. But uh, we all kind of we all kind of knew. It was a more realistic Brady Bunch. Well, it was a Brady Bunch twenty five years later or twenty years later. So the kids were more, more like real kids, but, uh, and I don't think it's a negative thing. I mean, blended families are blended families. You know, yeah. it's just, it's not a, you know, it's not like you can only do one show about blended families, but Brady Bunch was such a national, uh, I don't even know. I mean, it's still, they're still doing Brady Bunch stuff. Yeah. It was so beloved by the country and, and that it was, uh, we were compared to it often, but I didn't have any problem with that. I mean, if you're going to be compared to something, being compared to what is probably listed as the best version of a blended family TV show. Yeah. That's... Certainly and the most famous and the most enduring. Yeah. I mean, you're not being compared to the worst. No. <laughs> so no. That, that's something to look at. But what I liked about Step by Step was, yeah, the kids, everything felt more real and relatable, you know, for us growing up, because, like, we would watch Brady Bunch, and it's like, that doesn't, that that doesn't seem like it would play out the same. Right. You know, with the, oh, here's your lesson. Right, right. You know, and the the hand-holding mentality. Fast forward to step by step, you have these kids fighting each other, you know, the food fights in the kitchen. End right. of the day, they're all in it together, but they're, like, battling each other like siblings do. Well, it was, it was uh, like, like I said, it was later in television, and it was, um, 
We had some very, very strong characters on that show. We had some wonderful, wonderful... Obviously, the parents, Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers, were great. That's another thing. You had, you had parents that were hot and hot for each other. Yeah. And and sexual. And that was kind of uh, unusual. But uh, we, 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 did, we did that. We also had... Um, like you say, the kids that fall with each other. We had kids who were real <laughs> or close to real as we could make them that had their, their foibles and they didn't like each other necessarily. And they had, uh, you know, Dana and, uh, Dana and, um, Brandon, JT were just constantly going at each other. And Dana, which was played by, uh, Stacey Keenan, who was like the most incredible actress. She was what was she when I met her? Like maybe 15, it's less, I don't even know. She was the most unbelievably professional actress. And she could give you comedy or she could give you drama. She could do either one. She was just a wonderful talent. And uh, you could give her some killer lines and she would land them every single time. You know, it just, uh, so the relationships and after, and the, the actors, you know, the writers write it and then the actors play it. And then you see what the actors do particularly well and how they improve on what you've written and how they take what you've written and make it come to life. And it tells you which way to go with the show. Do you understand what I mean? You oh, see yeah. where the life is and you see where the conflict is and you see where the comedy is. And those two were wonderful. And we had other kids on the show that were just fantastic. So it was, it was an embarrassment of riches. And the other thing that made that show easy, I did it for six years. And the other thing that for me made that show easy to do was every year the kids would come back a year older and be in a totally different place, you know, physically, emotionally, socially. So we could, you know, we could use that and we did use that as they grew up to kind of show who they are now and how they've changed and how it affects their relationships with their parents and with each other. So it was, it was a lot of fun to do. Well, it was really fun because like, uh, Suzanne got a couple, uh, callbacks in the show to parts of her earlier career. Like, there was oh, a Three's yeah. Company reference. Uh, the Thighmaster was in there a couple times. Oh, always. We had, uh, we had Don Knotts on the show. Did you ever see that one? Yeah. That was, I mean, it was so much fun to work with him. And he was so funny. And such a lovely man that it was just a treat. I'm like, I'm sitting here in my office at home and I have a picture of him and I. Because I had to get a picture with him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't take that many pictures with celebrities, but Don Knotts. I had to get a picture. Officer Fife, but not Fife. I can't remember. Uh... We, we called him something else, but it was, the same, it was the same character. And we had a line in the script I'll never forget. It was like, uh, are you married? He goes, nah, nobody's ever slapped a saddle on this wild stallion. <laughs> you know, and it was just, just wonderful coming out of his mouth. It was like just a treat to see. You know, and you, I, I always hope for more uh, Dallas callbacks with uh, Patrick. Oh yeah, we did it. We did a couple of them. You know, our audience really wasn't the Dallas audience. Yeah. So it wasn't like they were going to necessarily get that much, but uh, we uh, we had a lot. Of, we had a lot of fun with Patrick. Patrick was surprisingly funny. I didn't know because I only knew him from Dallas. And here comes this guy, and he's hysterical. He's also a terrific director. He directed a number of episodes of Step by Step. And he's one of the most, he's probably the nicest guy in a way I've ever worked with because of all the actors I've ever worked with, all the stars, and he is a star, I never saw one second in six years of any like, I'm a star. He just didn't look at himself that way. He just was so even and so like, one of the guys that uh, it was just a pleasure working with him. I still occasionally see him. I saw him last year, and he's uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. That's a brain and I'd Suzanne like to pick. Is terrific and sexy and funny and bright and and just everything you want her to be. Oh yeah, and they made a great on-screen couple. They really did. They really loved each other personally, and they just. Uh, very hot together on screen. Chem again, chemistry. Some of the best scenes, you know, happened or well, didn't happen in the bedroom. 
Yeah. You know, because the kids kept interrupting and, you know, just the different things that, well, now as a parent, uh, you run into and you're just like, I can empathize. Yeah. This sucks. (laughs) (laughs) What about us? What about some time for us? It's like, you know, you spend your life focusing on your kids, like, you know, you you know you should, but you still have to take a step back and focus on the two of you. I think that's where most people get, most couples get lost, you know, or couples that have trouble get lost because it's hard to do both. It really is. I've been married, but I don't have any children, and uh, so I don't really know, but I think it's got to be very difficult, especially when they're very young. But uh, they keep having them anyway, so I guess it works out. Well, the practice is fun. (laughs) (laughs) Making them is just so much darn fun, you know? (laughs) It's running after them afterwards that sucks. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, exactly. I I totally get that. It's like hitting a home run, you know? It's great to knock it out of the park, but then you still got to run the bases. Yeah. And what's amazing to me is women are the most amazing creatures on earth because to go through that pain and to go through carrying a baby for nine months and have that discomfort and then to go through birth and then to go through nursing and having the baby and not sleeping and, you know, this whole thing. And then three, six months, nine months later, go, let's have another one. Yeah. (laughs) If men had to have children... There'd be one population, there'd be one generation left on Earth, and that would be it. Oh, yeah. Because I sure wouldn't have one. Mm-mm. So, uh, my hat's off to women. I say, yeah, one and done, if that. You got it. You got it. My hat's off to women who can do that. God bless them. Well, then you have these women who have, like, 12 and, like, 15 kids. You're just like, how? I know. I know. How do you possibly, how do you put, well, you get a reality TV show. You know, it's like, kudos to you, but what is your pain tolerance? <laughs> do you feel I pain? I people who have like four or five kids, and a friend of mine's wife says to me, the washer and dryer never stop. No, I have three kids, and we're constantly doing laundry. Yeah, she said they're never off. They're just never off. And so, laundry and uh, dishes, laundry and dishes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's my life. <laughs> How old are your kids? 14, 9, and 7. Oh, wow. Great ages. 14, 9, and 7. Wow. That's nice. You can do a TV show. Yeah, three little assholes. My, my three kids instead of like my three sons? Yeah, my three assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. Yeah, I love my kids. probably would be good for but... their psyches growing up, but... Uh... If it sells, it sells, you know? <laughs> Give it a shot. I love my kids. They, I know. Uh, you know, they're like any other kids. When, when they're at home, they annoy each other like siblings do. And it, at least when they're out in public or at other people's houses, they, they know how to tone that back and be social and uh, are relatively well-behaved. I'm sure they're great kids. So... That, that that makes me happy. It means we're doing it right. and They will also, while they pick on each other constantly, nobody else gets to pick on them. Well, that's exactly it. That's exactly it with families. You know, I can say whatever I want to my sister, but nobody else can. Exactly. You know, so that's uh, that's the difference. You know, conflict is life, you know? It's been, well, writing especially. If you don't have conflict, you got enough story. But the conflict is life in general, and you're going to have conflict with people. But the people you really care about, you know, you would you would fight for. You would always be there for. And other people you fight with that are just, you know, outsiders, you really have no connection to. So it's kind of not even worth fighting with them. It's like, what's the point? So my son was getting bullied for a while. And he's, you know, he's my youngest. And this is right when he started school. His sister, you know, they rode the same bus. Well, the first call I got was that she uh, hit a kid. Hmm. I was like, 
why'd she hit a kid? Say, that doesn't sound like her. Well, they're making fun of George. There you go. I said, oh. Why are you calling me? Talk to the other kid. Yeah, good job. She was standing up for her brother. Good job. That's right. You know, he's just starting out in school. She's standing up for her little brother. Yeah, as well she should. Exactly. She has good value. She did, in my opinion, the right thing. Yeah, it's like, what do you want me to do? I've, I've told them, look out for each other. I told her that was her job, was to watch out for her brother. Right. She did her job. I totally agree. It's like, I, I can't yell at her for doing what I said. I'm sorry. I mean, if you no. guys have to punish her at school, so be it. Because I know that's against your rules, but that's out of my hands. <laughs> yeah. So this has been fun. Uh, do you have any? A uh, lot of fun. Do you have any upcoming projects you're working on, or? You know, I have a couple of projects. I have a, a, a screenplay that I wrote. I have a pilot that I wrote in the last few years, but uh, they haven't really been out much. But uh, they're kind of things are really hard to sell nowadays, especially when you're like 68 years old. Uh, people are not really really interested in reading your stuff or talking to you. You know, it's it's the uh, no, I always say there are four stages in it. You know, you've heard the expression an actor's career or a writer's career. Have you ever heard this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm in stage four. <laughs> so, um, what I am working on, though, what I'm working on currently is uh, I just had a very funny family growing up. And I had a, just a very funny life. And I knew some interesting, bizarre people growing up. And uh, my mother was very overprotective, the kind of typical Jewish mother. So I'm working on a book of essays called When My Mother Was Called, I Wore a Sweater. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, you kind of tell where it goes from there. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of a fun, uh, it's going to be essays. It's not like a biography because I don't even want to, I wouldn't even be interested in reading my biography. More of an introspective. But, uh, it's just things and times and different places, you know, different, it was just such a different world that I grew up in that I think, I don't know that young people will be interested at all, but I think maybe people my age and even a little younger might, might find this kind of fun. So that's what I've been working on recently. I'm interested. And I still do it. Like I said, I still do improv. I do, you know, improv classes and, uh, with uh, my friend teaches Andy Goldberg, who wrote a wonderful book on improv, and uh, we get together on Wednesday nights, but we haven't been able to do it live in uh, about three months now, so we've been doing it on Zoom. So it's not as good, but it's still good. Yeah. I say it's, you know, you're still getting out there and doing it. Where yeah. can people find information on your uh, improv classes? Well, the classes, it's Andy Goldberg. Um, he teaches at, uh, well, the class is normally at the Avery Shriver Theater. And, uh, I, it is Andy Goldberg's class. Actually, if you just go to Andy Goldberg Improvisation, I'm sure you'll find him online. And he's, uh, also the founding director of a group called Off the Wall that's been working for, like, I think 40 years. Wow. And Andy wrote this fantastic book about improvisation that, uh, Really, really sums it up and gives you all, all, most of the inf- all the information you need to at least get the basics of improv. So I know the number one rule is you never say no. Never say no, because if you deny, the scene ends. Yep. Never deny. I was <laughs> I was guest appearing in a show years and years ago, and uh, we were doing an exercise called uh, freeze tags where people are in a physical position and they're doing an activity and then one person yells freeze and goes in and takes one of the positions and changes the activity to something else. And that's what makes it funny. And these two people were like, I don't know, they were one right behind each other standing with their arms out and I yelled freeze. And I got behind this woman and I said, uh, wow, this surf is really big. I've never ridden anything like this. And especially with somebody else on my board, she goes, what surf? There's no surf. What are you talking about? We're not in the ocean. <laughs> I just said good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's it, folks. I mean, we didn't obviously end the show then, but that ended that scene. 
it was uh, like so that's that's the thing and you know it was just like you let the imagination die pardon it's like she let the imagination die she did she didn't go with it she didn't go with it so that's uh it's like the number the one rule club. yeah never deny and listen because you, know, you don't know what the other person's going to say it's not like being an actor doing a script where you you know you can get lazy you can't get lazy in improv. You got to barely pay attention. So you have to be on your toes. You have to really be aware of your surroundings. Absolutely, and play the surroundings. Play the surroundings. Read the room. You know, and have fun. I have to tell you, as a writer, improv is one of the greatest training grounds in the world because you learn to construct a story. You learn how to be spontaneously funny. You learn what's funny and not funny. Uh, you learn how quickly your mind can work. It's just a wonderful training. I think it helped me more than almost anything else, other than actually doing the writing and being on the shows. We used to do uh, improv a lot in high school, uh, building up for our uh, musical uh, play performances as just kind of okay. a warm-up uh, routine, just to kind of help get everything flowing and it helped a lot it's wonderful it's wonderful and i still find it when it works magical yeah i you mean it, it really opens you up to like getting into character and releases the inhibitions that you have yes and just loosens you up really well and it's like okay now let's go have fun let, let, let's get to work yeah you know you're 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 not that rigid, you know, person trying to go up and read a script and jump into character. Now you've had some time yeah. to shake that off. You know, it's like the pre-workout when you're working out muscles. Yeah, exactly. And if you go up with something in mind and somebody else takes it in another direction, then you got to go where they've gone because they've already established something. So you have to be very flexible mentally. Oh, yeah. But it's a lot of fun. God. It's a lot of fun. It really is. So it's a I lot of fun, group. and it's not as easy as it looks. No, it's not. I was in a group called On the Spot, and we used to perform at this. It was kind of a famous place called The Horn in Santa Monica, California. It was kind of a famous club where a lot of big people came up. As, as a matter of fact, back in those days, and I didn't even remember this, Jerry Seinfeld was there a lot when we were there. Uh, and he, he, I wouldn't say he opened for us, but he usually went on before us. So I guess, I guess he kind of opened for us, but he was much funnier. But, uh, yeah, he had Jerry Seinfeld place. as an opener. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was just a great place. It was just a great place to be. And, uh, like I said, I still love doing it. So that tells you what, how addictive it can be. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's like when you're writing, the best feeling in writing is when you're writing. And you know you're you know you're kind of struggling with the computer and you're trying to write the line and then there's a point if you're lucky where the characters almost start talking automatically naturally and you're like taking dictation almost it's that's that to me is like the best part of writing when that happens it's just it's just wonderful that the the scene takes on a life of its own and you just kind of record it so it's it's the same thing if you're Imagination and <clears throat> your training and your ability are, are there. You can really have a lot of fun doing it as opposed to struggle to do it. If listeners want to find out more about you or reach out and ask you any questions, are you on any uh, social media sites? I'm on Facebook. Cool. I'm on Facebook, yeah. All right, folks. You heard him. He's on Facebook. So you know where to find him. You can find me at electronicmediacollective.com, along with other great podcasters, or on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. Bob, it has been great hanging out with you today. Paul, it was a pleasure. <clears throat> Excuse me, it was my pleasure, and uh, you did a, you you were so prepared, and did you knew more about me than I did. <laughs> so I <laughs> I appreciate that, and. Um, it was my my great fun. Oh, thank you. And listeners, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. And unless you heard it here, it's 
probably just a load of bull spit. So until next time, take it easy. Ooh, that sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you need some help. Be sure to tune in next time.